Chapter Eighteen of Zadig. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Carl Manchester, two thousand and seven. Zadig, or the Book of Fate, by Voltaire. Chapter Eighteen, The Enigmas or Riddles. Zadig, as one beside himself and perfectly thunderstruck, beat his march at random. He entered, however, into the city of Babylon, on that very day when those combatants who had been before engaged in the list or circus were already assembled in the spacious outer court of the palace in order to solve the enigmas, and give the wisest answers they could to such questions as the Grand Magus should propose. All the parties concerned were present except the knight of the green armour. No sooner had Zadig made his appearance in the city, but the populace flocked round about him. No eye was satisfied with gazing at him. All in general were lavish of their praises, and in their hearts wished him their sovereign, except the envious man, who, as he passed by, fetched a deep sigh and turned his head aside. The populace, with loud acclamations, attended him to the palace gate. The queen, who had heard of his arrival, was in the utmost agony between hope and despair. Her vexation had almost brought her to death's door. She couldn't conceive why Zadig should appear without his accoutrements, nor imagine which way Itabad could procure the snow-white armour. At the sight of Zadig, a confused murmur ran through the whole place. Every eye was surprised, though charmed at the same time, to see him again but then none were to be admitted into the assembly room except the knights. "'I have fought as successfully as any one of them all,' said Zadig, "'though another appears clad in my armour. But in the meantime, before I can possibly prove my assertion, I insist upon being admitted into court, in order to give my solutions to such enigmas as shall be proposed.' "'Twas put to the vote.' As the reputation of his being a man of the strictest honour and veracity was so strongly imprinted on their minds, the motion of his admittance was carried in the affirmative, without the least opposition. The first question the Grand Magus proposed was this. What is the longest and yet the shortest thing in the world? The most swift and the most slow, the most divisible and the most extended, the least valued and the most regretted and without which nothing can possibly be done, which, in a word, devours everything how minute soever, and yet gives life and spirit to every object or being, however great. Itabad had the honour to answer first. His reply was that a man of his merit had something else to think on than idle riddles. T'was enough for him that he was acknowledged the hero of the circus. One said the solution of the enigma proposed was fortune, others said the earth, others again the light, but Zadig pronounced it to be time. Nothing, said he, can be longer, since tis the measure of eternity. Nothing is shorter, since there is time always wanting to accomplish what we aim at. Nothing passes so slowly as time to him who is in expectation, and nothing so swift as time to him who is in the perfect enjoyment of his wishes. Its extent is to infinity in the whole, and divisible to infinity in part. 
All men neglect it in the passage, and all regret the loss of it when tis past. Nothing can possibly be done without it. It buries in oblivion whatever is unworthy of being transmitted down to posterity, and it renders all illustrious actions immortal. The assembly agreed unanimously that Zadig was in the right. The next question that was started was, what is the thing we receive without being ever thankful for it, which we enjoy without knowing how we came by it, which we give away to others without knowing where it is to be found, and which we lose without being any ways conscious of our misfortune? Each passed his verdict. Zadig was the only person that concluded it was life. He solved every enigma proposed with equal facility. Itabad, when he heard the explications, always said that nothing in the world was more easy than to solve such obvious questions, and that he could interpret a thousand of them without the least hesitation were he inclined to trouble his head about such trifles. Other questions were proposed in regard to justice, the sovereign good, and the art of government. Zadig's answers still carried the greatest weight. What pity tis, said some who were present, that one of so comprehensive a genius should make such a scurvy cavalier. Most illustrious grandees, said Zadig, I was the person that had the honour of being victor at your circus. The white armour, most puissant lords, was mine. That awkward warrior there, Lord Itabad, dressed himself in it whilst I was asleep. He imagined, it is plain, that it would do him more honour than his own green one. Unaccoutred as I am, I am ready, before this august assembly, to give them incontestable proof of my superior skill, to engage with the usurper of the white armour, with my sword only in my mantle and bonnet, and to testify that I only was the happy victor of the justly admired Hottam. Itabad accepted the challenge with all the assurance of success imaginable. He did not doubt but being properly accoutred with his helmet, his cuirass, and his bracelets, he should be able to hew down an antagonist in his mantle and cap, and nothing to screen him from his resentment but a single sabre. Zadig drew his sword and saluted the queen with it, who viewed him with transport mixed with fear. Itabad drew his, but paid his compliments to nobody. He approached Zadig as one whom he imagined incapable of making any considerable resistance. He concluded it was in his power to cut Zadig into atoms. Zadig, however, knew how to parry the blow, by dexterously receiving it upon his fort, as the swordsmen call it, by which means Itabad's sword was snapped in two. With that, Zadig in an instant closed his adversary, and by his superior strength, as well as skill, laid him sprawling on his back. Then, holding the point of his sword to the opening of his cuirass, Submit to be stripped of your borrowed plumes, or you are a dead man this moment. Itabad, always surprised that any disappointment should attend a man of such exalted merit as himself, tamely permitted Zadig to disrobe him by degrees of his pompous helmet, his superb cuirass, his rich bracelets, his brilliant cuisses, or armour for his thighs, and other martial accoutrements. When Zadig had equipped himself cap a pie in his now recovered armour, 
he flew to Astarte, and threw himself prostrate at her feet. Cador proved without any great difficulty that the white armour was Zadig's property. He was thereupon acknowledged king of Babylon by the unanimous content of the whole court, but more particularly with the approbation of Astarte, who after such a long series of misfortunes now tasted the sweets of seeing her darling Zadig thought worthy in the opinion of the whole world to be partner of her royal bed. Itabad withdrew, and contented himself with being called my lord within the narrow compass of his own domestics. Zadig, in short, was elected king, and was as happy as any mortal could be. Now he began to reflect on what the angel Jezrad had said to him. Nay, he reflected so far back as the story of the Arabian atom of dust metamorphosed into a diamond. The queen and he adored the divine providence. Zadig permitted Misuf, the fair coquette, to make her conquests where she could. He sent couriers to bring the freebooter Arbogad to court, and give him an honourable military post in his army, with a farther promise of promotion to the highest dignity, but upon this express condition that he would act for the future as a soldier of honour, but assured him at the same time that he'd make a public example of him if he followed his profession of freebooting for the future. Setoc was sent for from the lonely deserts of Arabia, together with the fair Almonza, his new bride, to preside over the commercial affairs of Babylon. Cador was advanced to a post near himself, and was his favourite minister at court, as the just reward of his past services. He was, in short, the king's real friend, and Zadig was the only monarch in the universe that could boast of such an attendant. The dwarf, though dumb, was not wholly forgotten. The fisherman was put into the possession of a very handsome house, and Orkan was sentenced not only to pay him a very considerable sum for the injustice done him in detaining his wife, but to resign her likewise to the proper owner. The fisherman, however, grown wise by experience, softened the rigour of the sentence, and took the money only, in full of all accounts. He didn't leave so much as Simira wholly disconsolate, though she had such an aversion to a blind eye nor Azura comfortless, notwithstanding her affectionate intention to shorten his nose. For he soothed their sorrows by very munificent presence. The envious informer, indeed, died with shame and vexation. The empire was glorious abroad, and in the full enjoyment of tranquillity, peace, and plenty at home. This, in short, was the true golden age, the whole country was swayed by love and justice. Everyone blessed Zadig, and Zadig blessed heaven for his unexpected success. Finis End of Zadig or the Book of Fate by Voltaire